0: Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. This is Episode 42. I'm your host, Mark Yakano, a Managing Director with Major Lindsay in Africa in its advisory services practice. I am extraordinarily fortunate to have today as my guest Dr. Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman. Dr. Kellerman is an author, entrepreneur, startup executive, and Harvard-trained physician with expertise in both behavioral and organizational change, digital health, well-being, and AI. She has published a book with Professor Martin Seligman, who is the father or grandfather of positive psychology, depending on who you listen to, And as she is the chief product officer and chief innovation officer at BetterUp, which is a transformation platform for global professionals. And she's also the head of BetterUp Labs, which is their research and innovation arm. She was in private practice in psychiatry for close to a decade. She's worked on global health policy and interventions for the World Health Organization. And she has founded other technology startups And I'm gonna turn it over to you, Dr. Kellerman, to expand because you have a very, very impressive resume. And if I read it, people will have fallen asleep.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Mark. I I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. And I think all I would add is um, that the overarching goal for me in in my career is to help people thrive. Uh, And increasingly over the last 10 years, my focus has really been the workplace, what are the unusual forces that make it so challenging to do that at work and and driving research about the workplace um, and also helping through BetterUp to build tools to help people thrive. Um, And uh, and I I put out a book uh, earlier this year in January with, with Marty called Tomorrow Mind, which encapsulates a lot of the key points of that research so that as many people as possible can benefit from it.
1: I encourage you to buy it. I have and I've started reading it and it's fascinating and science backed and it's um not a self-help book it's a really really diligent study of how people can thrive in chaos and um it's 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 very unique so I encourage everyone to buy it and start reading it that's my unbiased endorsement of my <laughs> podcast guest uh, so, Dr. Kellerman, the reason I asked you um, to come on board today, and I could have asked you to come on board on an infinite number of topics, but I wanted to focus on the topic of loneliness, and in particular, its its relationship to the wellness of the legal profession. We've been following data from the American law media uh, since 2019 on legal mental health issues. And their surveys year over year cite loneliness as a driving factor in what's an ever worsening state of the mental health of of lawyers and what I call allied legal professionals. And then there was a study in 2018, which I know you're familiar with because I think you participated, showing that law is the loneliest profession. And we have enough troubles talking about attorneys reaching out, getting help, building community, but we've never really focused in this podcast on what is loneliness, how does it impact mental wellness, and what are some of the ways in which we're going to have to confront more loneliness based on technology advances and based on the way our culture has... um, evolved. So could you start by giving us sort of a working definition, understanding it's subjective about what loneliness actually is?
0: Yeah, sure. So loneliness is a a subjective feeling um, that that we are alone, that we're not connected to others. Um, We may feel like we're with others, but that we're not seen uh, or heard uh, or understood by them. Um, And uh, as opposed to social isolation which is a little bit more objective related to whether we're actually in contact with people. Loneliness is whether that contact you know is enough and whether it is meaningful enough to have us feel all of the good stuff that comes when we we are connected with others. Um, Loneliness came uh, to my interest in 2017 and then we published that study in 2018 as you mentioned For a few reasons. So, the first is that every model of well being has relationships as a pillar of it. And these are meaningful relationships, relationships that actually have a physiological impact where we have this feeling of connectedness that lowers our cortisol levels. It shifts us from the sympathetic, fight or flight nervous system into the parasympathetic, you know, rest, revive, relax, restore system. Loneliness, uh, you know, as, as the opposite is, is related to all kinds of negative things we can talk about in terms of our health. And then when we aren't connected, we see all kinds of benefits for our personal but also our, our professional lives. And so we did this study in 2018. And we published uh, a lot of the findings in Harvard Business Review. Um, under the title of something like the loneliest workers and was a profile of risk factors for being lonely at work. The U.S. Surgeon General had also just recently published something calling loneliness an epidemic. So there's broad interest and we wanted to highlight the ways that this, this manifests in the workplace. And that was the first time that I really saw that this, you know, stark signal around the legal industry. Um, law was the lowest in terms of, or, or the highest loneliness scores, you know, the least feeling of, of connection. Um, and, uh, and then from there, it was always something that I, I was looking at in, in every study we did on related topics of thriving in the workplace. So we looked at meaningful work. Law was again the lowest There's a lot of research on resilience at work, which is a big part of of thriving today in my research. Um, Lawyers have an extremely challenged uh, resilience at work. Even things like foresight and prospection, which are uh, skills we talk about in the book is so important and relevant to our ability to thrive in an era of constant change. Lawyers are the most challenged in that of all industries and professions. And so you know, increasingly interested and concerned about the um, poor, poor signals of well-being. And in some ways, you know, lo- loneliness is sort of the, um, this foundational layer of, of what we're looking at in terms of warning signals for lawyers who are trying to care for themselves and look after their well-being. So
1: one of the things you said that was interesting to me is with respect to lawyers can be with people and still lonely because I think I maybe had a maybe a standard maybe an unstandard understanding or thinking correlating loneliness to introverts and I know you've made some 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 distinctions between solitude and loneliness Mm -hmm. and and can you expand on that a little bit yeah often it sounds like some very lonely people are actually surrounded by lots of people
0: yeah and i think that is more typically what we see with lawyers who have a job where they're interacting with clients and colleagues and you know officials in the in the legal system right there's plenty of people that they are communicating with um but loneliness is it's not just about whether or not we're in contact with people it's do we actually feel connected to people through that uh, through that contact. Um, one of the best scales of loneliness is out of UCLA. They have this, this 20 item loneliness scale. They have shorter versions, but some of the items there can help us sort of get under the hood of this. And so as we're measuring loneliness, some of the questions we ask people are things like, um, I lack companionship. And um, my social relationships are superficial, right? And you say uh, often, sometimes never, I feel this way kind of an answer. Um, things like no one really knows me well, right? You know, think about when we're as, as lawyers are working with all of these people, how many people really know who they are as human beings versus understand in more a transactional way what they're trying to accomplish on a given case or for a given client. Well, uh, and it's, yeah, I was just going to say, in some ways, that's that's even lonelier to feel that there's all these people around that you're not seen. There's no one who can provide support, emotional support for you. Um, that can be, you know, e- even more, uh, even more um, disheartening. Because for those who are socially isolated and feel lonely, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, I got to get out into the world and, and try to fix that. For those who are already out in the world all day, every day, and still feel lonely, it can feel, you know, extremely discouraging. It really struck me
1: that thought you had about you can be around people, lots of people, but not necessarily feel like you're fully who you are or can be fully who you are. And so there's sort of a filtering or a suppression mechanism that goes on that seems like it it almost intrinsically disconnects you from everyone around you because there's the you they see and then there's a you inside and that seems like that would be an extremely traumatic thing to have to try and accommodate on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah. It also, you know, it connects to the broader conversation of authenticity at work and um, in other professions um, there, you know, there's still this challenge of sort of my work self versus my non-work self and what do you share with colleagues and, you know, we see time and again that the more we're able to feel that we're authentically ourselves and bring our... our. Um, you know our, our personalities and even some of our vulnerabilities to bear. We build stronger relationships at work. We feel more connected. We feel more supported. And then our our work product is actually enhanced by it. But it is a, a very unnatural world of work that we we live in, you know, this idea of the people we work with are really fundamentally strangers in the biological sense. They're not people we grew up with, we knew how to trust. So Even outside of of all of the challenges that are specific to lawyers, the social connection at work is is increasingly uh, difficult across industries for all of those reasons and and many more.
1: One of the things that was cited in American Law Media's latest survey was that a huge stressor is this ever-crushing, never-stopping billable hour requirement storm where people are just under such pressure to meet those requirements that it virtually forecloses an opportunity to have a more holistic life and can that can that contribute to, to this loneliness epidemic
0: yeah i mean i i think it's a, a huge part of it and um i i see it in the reports and i see it you know anecdotally among my friends and family who are are lawyers the sense that okay i want to I want to invest in a relationship with someone but I'm not going to get reimbursed for it and so not only do I have to think about um, the cost of the of my personal time but that's some ways gets billed as a loss to the firm for the time I could have been billed to something else and instead I'm taking a client out to dinner in every other industry those things are not in conflict you know they're Sure, taking a client out to dinner might cut away from your personal time, but it's part of your job. It's the, the value of that is is celebrated and you know, it, it's captured in your compensation package and um those moments of connection which are are so enriching for us uh, as humans to to feel conflicted about that as somehow it's outside your job, outside what you're supposed to be reimbursed or compensated for. Um that's a huge part Of of the challenge and and just as much for connecting with colleagues, you know, if every second has to be accounted for. um, The other piece of this that is is, I think, really important, and and we talk about it in our book is the ways that having a mindset of time famine produces antisocial behavior. So time famine is a mindset where we feel like we're all in a hurry. We're very aware of that ticking clock. We don't have time to do X, Y, and Z. I would say the billable hours heightens time famine and, you know, and makes it even more extreme, this, this clock ticking in the background. And um, in a mindset of time famine, we're much less likely to take time to connect with people, to take time to reach out and build relationships. And so part of what we try to help people do is actually shift out of the time famine mindset, and there's lots of ways to do that. And you know, and, and there's ways to snap out of the sort of cultural paradigm that keeps us in it. It's much harder to snap out of a time famine mindset if your entire compensation structure is, is built around it. Um, so that's another place where I think it, you know, it, it keeps us in a mindset that um, actually fosters disconnection.
1: Something that's interested in me is doing some reading over the years about how people may choose or may by necessity sort of develop their work family because they're with those people so long at the expense of like their family family um and and i'm curious like in doing that are are they are they solving a loneliness loneliness issue by creating a proxy or is that almost like masking the bigger issue of them being disconnected with the folks that they should feel the most connected to? It's just, it it comes up in conversation, and I never thought of it till today in terms of loneliness, but we build these proxies, but are they really fulfilling?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the crux of the the issue. I'd say it's how fulfilling is that work relationship, and then is it coming at the expense of relationships outside of work? We know that having close friends in particular, one close friend at work, there was a whole body of research on this about 10 or 15 years ago that having a best friend at work is really good for all kinds of, for job engagement, job satisfaction. Um, So there's a lot of good things that can come out of an authentic close friend at work. You know, people call it your work husband or your work wife or whatever it is, or or just a really, really close work best friend. you know if it's hampering your relationships outside of work um that's that's its own sort of separate issues and there and there's lots of ways that our work lives can become all consuming at the expense of things that really matter to us outside of work so i think it would depend on those two variables how deep and close and truly connected is the work relationship and then is it impinging on things that are valuable meaningful good for your well-being outside of work
1: so, if it's an authentic, nourishing relationship, that's one thing. If it's sort of escaping from having to deal with your family when you have in a, in a in a time famine situation, that could be an entirely different outcome.
0: Yeah, if you're if you're leaning into that work relationship to avoid challenges on the the home front, you know that's just a matter of time before you end up having to. To deal with that.
1: Can you expand a little bit on the difference between loneliness and social isolation? Because I know that they're interrelated, but they're not they're not synonymous for each other. They're not.
0: They're yeah. Not- so so again, social isolation is simply whether or not you're having social interaction with other people. Um, and in this day and age, there are sadly many people who can spend a whole day. Even a week barely talking to another person, maybe a a delivery person who comes by their home. Um, You know, loneliness is do we experience a sense uh, internally of feeling lonely, of feeling disconnected, of feeling that um, we're in this on our own? We don't have a source of support with others. Um, and we can feel lonely even in the midst of lots of people. We can feel lonely even if we're not socially isolated. Of course, very often those two things hang together. And when we are socially isolated, we expect to see higher degrees of loneliness as a, at the population level.
1: It's interesting because sometimes when you're at an event or a social, social, social event or social engagement. You can either feel or you can see, feel people, see people feeling like they're observers and they're not really part of the, part of the, the, the energy. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you can see, you can see how they begin to recede. Yeah. It's almost, it's, it's sad, it's tangible. It's a feeling I personally have felt from time to time. Um,
0: being a bit. Yeah. But- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something, you know, we, we, um, we really try to help people with building those skills when they're, they're young, you know, and, and that's a huge part of the value of school and, and socialization in school. Um, but there are certain personality types and features that make it harder. Um, And some folks, you know, even as adults, they need help with that through social support groups, um, getting help with social anxiety. There are all kinds of reasons why we can find it harder and remain on the periphery. And actually, every social interaction makes us want to have less, not more social interaction because we we know we're not getting out of it what we are expecting to.
1: One of the things as I was going through and prepping is you made a observation that social media has actually contributed to loneliness in a sense, even though it would seem like you're, 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 you're inherently connected. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the impact of social media on on our feeling of whether we're lonely or not, or how it might exacerbate someone prone to loneliness
0: Yeah, so it's a very complex question um, because there's lots of different types of social media, lots of different types of interactions, um, everything from liking a photo of someone you've never met to putting a heartfelt comment on a a post of someone you're very close with, right? So like really extreme polls of what it could represent. Um, And for sure, there are ways of interacting with social media that are produce antisocial outcomes and, and can make us feel lonelier and less connected. Um, but there are also ways of interacting with with social media and with different types of social platforms that can build connection. And, and you know, there's, there's even companies, some of them nonprofits, some of them for profits, but that are using social platforms to actually combat loneliness. So I think I think that there's a lot of nuance in how it's done and what we're seeing. I will say that I think that one rule of thumb that's helpful is um, are we using social media to replace kind of the, the in-person connection building or is it an enhancement of that? And one of the... the indicators um, that it may be more of a replacement for some populations when we look at how much for example are kids getting out and hanging out with each other in person Um, how many extended conversations are, are kids having with one another today versus a couple generations ago and that's where we start to see some of the signals are, are troublesome and are worrisome and um, particularly as parents you know that's that's where we wanna keep an eye on things like time on social media and platforms. It's, um, Is it you know, a positive interaction, right? Hopefully we're taking for granted that those interactions are not negative and tearing people down, but assuming it's a positive interaction, to what extent is it a replacement for what we know is nourishing and meaningful in terms of a face-to-face connection? Or is it more of an enhancement of those rather than you know, meaning less time um, in those face-to-face interactions.
1: So there's some issue about calibration in terms of the amount of time spent, but there's also a real need to look at the quality of time spent, how it's spent, and whether it's in lieu of some more authentic person-to-person interactions.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're learning more about what works and what doesn't work. We're certainly in our lab really trying to look at this and, um, you know, to the extent that we need scalable solutions to this epidemic of loneliness, I think tech platforms have uh, the potential, you know, and run by people who are trying to solve this problem rather than who are trying to get us to click things. Um, I think there's a lot of potential for these tools to be used for good and actually to solve these problems, um, but there's there's just a lot we need to understand about what they're doing, um, what they're doing to our brains and, and to our relationships.
1: What, what impact does the sheer velocity and quantity of information that comes at us every day have on us? I think I read. Something about there are like five billion users at any given point in time, and streaming. I don't know how many bits of data. I may have read that. I, I, that that number sticks out to me. But you know, what does the um, velocity of information that just just comes at us every day have? And how does it impact our ability to sort of relate just to ourselves to other humans?
0: Yeah, so we we um we talk in the book about uh, the metaphor we use for today's world of work is the whitewater. It's this sense of we are rafting with others or in our own kayak. For lawyers in particular, I think of it as sort of a solo kayaker in these ever-changing whitewaters. Industry forces, technological disruption, um, you know, markets upset overnight by some newcomer not to mention pandemics, globalization means that the, um, the pace with which we get this information is faster and the and the pace with which something happening on one side of the world has impact for us is, is much faster than you know, we ever could have imagined it would be. Um, and we talk about how this is challenging through two dimensions. One is the pace of the change and the other is the nature of the change in that it's very volatile, um, but it's also uncertain Uh, complex, ambiguous, and using the the acronym VUCA, V-U-C-A, which is introduced by military theorists to help us understand kind of post-Cold War um, politics and also uh, different aspects of how how military interactions were changing. The nature of change being so unpredictable, um, being opaque, you know, think about those 5 billion points of origin. How do they amplify? How do they cancel each other out? Being able to kind of sit with that and know that it's impossible for us to accurately predict where any of that is going. um, That's really challenging. Uh, Change inherently is, you know, we're we're wired to um, vet change for potential harm. And so, you know, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, which again is that fight or flight. As I said, once it's not fight or flight or, you know, or maybe celebrate, like there's not a part of us that's hardwired to think, oh, there could be a good outcome here in this change because when we evolved, we just needed to avoid a catastrophic life ending outcome. So we're sitting in these kayaks and all these signals are coming in that trigger fight or flight you know, all the time. Um, that creates, you know, the potential for chronic stress, fatigue, anxiety, really poor well-being. Um, as we said before, this this mindset of uh, both being always in a hurry with too much to do, always so much information to absorb, and all of these changes coming, that doesn't like lend itself to deep social connection. We have to work to get out of that mindset in order to focus on building social connection, on helping others, you know, these pro-social activities, we're more likely to do them when we we feel um, more relaxed in that parasympathetic nervous system and um, we feel we have more, more time to give to others. So um, that's one way of thinking about it is through this sort of sympathetic, parasympathetic and what does that do to how prone we are to, to social interaction. Um there's other, lots of other impact, of course, that this has on our mental functioning, um, on our ability to be innovative, for example. So a lot of creativity ref- relies on something called the default mode network, a brain network that uh, gets really interrupted and does not do well when we're constantly engaged in busy work, answering emails, reading blogs or news reports or whatever it may be. Um, and so you know our life has a lot less of this sort of high quality daydreaming time, which is very fulfilling and meaningful and also the source of a lot of innovation. So that's another example of, of how uh, where we are really just beginning to understand the psychological impact that these tools have on us and the extent that we already know there's a lot of things that are good for us that these tools do interfere with and we have to, gain more of an awareness of that you know i think it's there's there's all of these moments in human history where we have some new innovation and it's all the rage right and we just haven't learned yet the ways that it's bad for our bodies or our minds or our culture or all of those things and we're we're experiencing all of that real time now
1: yeah i'll never forget reading cal Newport's book called deep work mm-hmm. and today as i Try and parse through some complicated things that I need time to think about, and finding and you know, having to get up earlier and earlier so I can have that time where these digital distractions don't um, interrupt w- w- what might be an actual idea. But one of the things you talked about in terms of the you know the Whitewater effect and and sort of this ever-shifting pool of information and sort of this need to perpetually pivot is, how do you help people navigate through an environment where making decisions isn't that easy because the right answer isn't necessarily the answer? There are multiple right answers and there are multiple wrong answers because of the complexity.
0: Yeah, so we in our book, we talk about five skills that we see as essential for today's world of work. One of them is all about social connection, and, and that's mainly what we've chatted about so far. Um, another one is called prospection, which is our ability to imagine and plan for the future. And as we, we talked about in this whitewater environment, you're never going to predict exactly what's going to happen not with any level of certainty but what you can do is prospect ahead to a kind of probabilistic array of possibilities so you can say okay here are the seven or eight things most likely to happen to our our business in the next 3 years here is a couple of things pretty negative things that could happen here's a couple of pretty positive things that could happen that are less likely but we want to keep those as kind of high flyers on the on the periphery and then having done that work and it's not it's not easy it's hard uh, and and we have to sort of understand how to do it how how our brain breaks down those tasks what are the errors we can make in different phases of that prospective work but once we do that what we're left with instead of a prediction is this, sort of array of what are the the possibilities that we can foresee and how do we allocate resources against the ones that we think are most likely versus least likely while keeping in mind that some of those least likely ones could be catastrophic. Um, We then are in a much more agile position up against a wider array of possibilities of what could be coming. And the actions we take to prepare for this array um, help us cover against you know a much a much broader set of possibilities than we otherwise would have uh, would have would have taken the time to prepare for. Um, this is you know I think I think one of the lessons people could take from the whitewater metaphor is well you can't see what's coming so you just got to deal with what's right in front of you. And some of that is fair. I think that that the the two points of nuance that are really important is that. When we look at who's most successful in the whitewater environment, it's the people who spend the most time planning. They really think ahead again about all of these different possibilities, and then they're working back into what are the ways we should position today ahead of what's coming. And that's why prospection is one of our our kind of top five skills. The other one though is that, even as we think about what it takes to deal with one set of rapids after another, so maybe it's you know, how is GPT for disrupting your business today, or maybe a few months ago was about do we mandate return to office? These sort of punctuated, um, punctuated moments of challenge or crisis, we have to be able to gain perspective on the fact that it's not about any one moment of crisis, it's not about any one set of rapids. It's building the skills we'll need to go through rapid after rapid after rapid. And that's really the goal of the resilience building, which is a third of the five skills is resilience. How do we arm ourselves to sustainably be able to get through this quantity of challenge and change, which is really with us for the rest of our careers? It's The whitewater is not slowing down. The only way to get off it is really take a break from your career or work in a really non-competitive um type of industry or environment. As long as you're working for a, a modern company that's competing out there, it's going to be the white water. And we need to build these skills to sustain us before we, you know, hit that burnout, chronic fatigue, chronic stress that we talked about.
1: Can those resilience skills be developed by an individual without having sort of the support? of, of, of the, let's say, just at work, the support of their company. Is it possible or plausible that a person without sort of that support, understanding the climate that the employees are navigating in, can develop those kind of resilience skills if there aren't other institutional sort of tumblers turning, turning towards them?
0: Yeah, so let me give two answers to this question. First is that all of these the in in resilience, we look at what are the drivers, what are the the psychological skills you need to hit a resilient outcome, and we name a number of them in the book and how to develop them and and focus on a in a very kind of high leverage way on the skills you need versus someone else needs. That work, um, you know, we we've seen people develop resilience in even extreme environments, uh, like. Being in battle in the military, right? So absolutely you can develop resilience and you can do it under extreme circumstances. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think all of us as, as individuals who want to have long and sustained careers, it's in our interest very selfishly to develop these skills, just as we had to figure out how to be professional when we got our first job and what did that mean, right? And it's in some ways it's it's on us because it's in our self-interest. The other piece of this, though, is that there are a lot of um, organizational factors, in particular managerial factors, that can undermine resilience. And so an organization that's looking to optimize resilience for its people would be, um, you know, foolish not to really focus in on those. So for example, one of the greatest determinants of, of our risk for burnout in particular is how resilient our manager is. Um, and if you think about what it's like to report into someone to have a leader who's running around like a chicken with their head cut off and can't cope and is flying off the handle versus someone who is modeling how do you like manage something in just a calm centered way, um, it has a major impact on you and, and your well being. And so, yes, it's much harder to be resilient when you're reporting to a, a leader with low resilience. Um, I think that. There's two takeaways, though. One is like, even so, you should still work on your resilience because it will help you and it will serve you for the rest of your career, even when you don't report to that leader anymore. And second of all, if it's really that bad, that is something you should think about is is that, do you have other options? Are there other leaders you could report to? Is that a reason to actually leave a job? Potentially, yes, if you have a a leader who's, who's really unstable or toxic and that is diminishing your well being, which is a, a precious resource.
1: This would seem that it really lends itself to training and investments by lawyers in themselves and by their firms because we work in an inherently adversarial profession.
0: Yeah, such a good point. So um, I think of it as almost an occupational hazard for lawyers um, that. There's, it's adversarial. There's so much conflict and so much of the job and the value you're providing is to think about a worst case scenario, which is actually one of the worst things for resilience. So what we call catastrophization, uh, which is one of the things lawyers are paid to do is really toxic and and undermines our resilience. And it's something we have to work really hard with people to overcome, um, a big driver of resilience is also optimism and and in some ways lawyers are paid to be to make pessimistic calls or predictions or call out risks and and so to the extent that that's an occupational hazard it makes it even harder for lawyers to respond resiliently to all the things um and uh and yeah i mean uh, just like any occupational hazard uh, an employer has a certain responsibility to help their employees Counter it and have uh, their health protected in the face of that occupational hazard. That's how I would think about what is being required of lawyers day to day and the impact it's going to have on your well-being as just a result of doing that activity over and over again.
1: As you, as you can tell from my podcasts, they never go the direction that I um I say they're going to go. They always take the life of the speaker, which is good. Um, so I have this question because. As lawyers, we are trained to manage risk, look for risk, mitigate risk. Um, We're never trained to tell clients they're going to get a great outcome at the expense of telling them that they could get a bad outcome. Is there a way or are there skills that can be learned to disassociate sort of the type of analysis and advice we often have to give with how it shapes our general outlook on life as a whole person? I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's something I've wrestled yeah. with. I've dug into the reading on the stereotypes of lawyers. And yeah, we have to do certain things that are not inherently joyful because it's our job. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to define us. But I don't know that we have the skill set to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here, so we can take our cues from um, how we think about psychological hazards in other professions and how we, we think about countering them. So, you know, a few examples, you can think about people on a, um, a customer call service line who are subject to abuse by the people they're, they're talking to. Um, there's people whose whole job is to censor sensitive uh, images online and texts and things, and so they're exposed to some some toxic things, right? Or you can think about someone like a, a doctor who maybe is just a, a, an oncologist who's dealing with such heavy, grieving work all the time that it can have these psychological impacts as an outgrowth of just the work they do every single day. So what is the strategy to help those folks? There's sort of two things you can do, two ways you can think about it. Um, one is how do you create those those boundaries between the work and between yourself and your well-being, And there's a lot of ways to think about that. It can, again, be about skill development, tool development, so you're sort of working, if you're doing a lot of pessimism in work, then outside of work or as as part of the training and development part of your work, you're really building the optimism muscle to kind of counter that. So it's the boundaries and counterbalancing approach is one. The other one is sometimes, and I imagine there's some lawyers where this is possible, you can create more room in the work itself for these more positive activities. Um, So, you know, for for example, um, this would be, this is an approach that has been helpful to a number of financial institutions who are going from being having a value of risk containment to still needing to preserve that value, but also needing to be more innovator, innovative. And so what you allow for there is this coexistence of activities where it's all about containing the risk and then new activities that the market's calling for that are actually more about leaning into the risk that are uh, really you have to for the work itself builds more of the muscles of, of optimism um, of countering catastrophization. And so even just to do your job in an expanded portfolio, you can find ways to build that out. And I think that this is, this is an area where being more creative with the billable hours model would help a lot. Um, I, you know, I, I know that that's that's a tall order, and and there's so many reasons that that model is there and it is hard to overcome. But there are firms who have different models, and there are different ways of of contracting with with lawyers and building opportunities for more activities within the what is actually compensated for a lawyer that are. In support of our well-being, um, that are optimistic, that are more about business development, which is a more optimistic relational part of the work, right? Which which does matter for lawyers, but is is not as well or clearly compensated. Um, so I think that's an avenue as well
1: But that's that should really be on the table. That's really requiring intentional design of work, and that's just not on an employee basis about their outlook or they're developing or fostering certain resiliency skills. That's, that's as much about law firms and employers intentionally designing a culture and a work environment where you can thrive in different ways besides just billing hours and just giving clients the worst case scenario.
0: Yeah, in, in many ways it would require changing the whole business model for an organization. Are there any
1: industries you see that are more progressive in this way in the in the course of your research and your experience? Are there any industries that are that are taking on this issue more structurally than others? Well,
0: we've talked about a lot of different issues. So which one which issue in particular are you thinking um,
1: of? The issue you just we've just talked about about um creating sort of this environment this this less pessimistic environment where you can foster resiliency yeah. to- So
0: that yeah I would say that um some pockets of the financial industry are really taking this on and there's it's it's being driven by um the fact that they're at risk of being disrupted by all of these newcomers with different products um they need to at least keep pace but ideally also be innovators themselves and that's very different from what large parts of this industry have been used for historically is is containing financial risk, mitigating financial risk, making conservative judgments. Um, And uh, and so that balance, think about a bank, for example, and what we rely on a bank for, but also what's going to keep a bank in business today. Um, And so as a result of that, they're really undertaking meaningful investments to reinvent culture. To build new skills, um, to to empower people to be more innovative, and some people have been doing this work for forty years, and they, you know, don't want to do that. Some people have been doing the work for fifty years, and they're super excited that they get to finally take action on some idea they've been they've been harboring. So, uh, you see a lot of different reactions on on the at the leadership level, on the front lines to this shift. Um, but it's being communicated in some cases very, very clearly from the top that this is existential. Um, and uh, as a business, right? Yeah, and you know, and what's I think what's great is that it really is in our the interest of our well being to have people who um, have historically spent so much time on this pessimistic risk containment side of things be able to step out of the catastrophic mindset, step out of the risk-averse mindset to embrace more optimism and get to experience kind of the joy of of innovation and and what it has to to offer.
1: Yeah, that is sort of an ideal circumstance that I think many of us would love to experience for sure. So at the risk of meandering and driving you crazy, I'd like to come back a little bit to loneliness and some of the things that go with it one of the things that as as a legal technology and legal operations consultant one of the things that we talk about a lot now whether we want to or not is generative ai and what impact is generative ai going to have on jobs are certain jobs going to go away are certain are certain jobs um gonna just stop existing? Will people be replaced by, you know, computers and bots? And and I'm curious because I know you you do a lot of work in the innovation side of BetterUp. What you're seeing the impact of sort of this looming and sort of never changing, rapidly changing, ever changing technology um, acceleration in that field, what impact it's having on people and their sense of connectedness and and even their sense of optimism or or stress.
0: yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of professions that um, when large swaths of the population first interacted with, let's say, chat GPT three, um you know, there was sort of a, a crisis alarm sounded, and you know, so to a certain extent, some of that's still going on. Um, you know, I, I think uh, there's there's other professions that haven't yet felt that existential threat because of it. The truth is that a lot of earlier versions of these tools have been used to do these things for quite some time. We've had bots writing news articles for quite some time. Um, Lots of the ways that technology comes in to replace parts of our jobs. We actually are, if not the ones leading that, but welcoming it because it's taking away boring parts of our jobs that, that we don't like. Um, So I think that there's part of this which is counter, we need to counterbalance like okay what, which parts of this work did we, are we actually glad that we don't need to do anymore and we can focus on other things now, to the extent that it raises the specter of job loss, right, um, that is what is I think really terrifying and we know that job displacement and job loss does have a very negative impact on our our well being and that it lasts for some time. Um, Our research and a lot of the the research of of, um, thought leadership institutes like McKinsey Global Institute or the World Economic Forum, you know, the predictions are that we are all going to experience a lot more job loss and job turnover in our uh, careers ahead, although there's by no means a consensus that that means that people will just start to be less and less employed. It's more that you're going to need to change your skills, change your industry, change what you're doing more frequently. And so if anything, our message again comes back to, how do we be prepared for that constant change? How do we build the resilience and the agility to pick up new skills, start new things, um, look for opportunities to lean into innovation, right? As this sort of, Humanizing, enjoyable pursuit that we get to do more of as uh, the the sort of less interesting parts of our jobs get automated. One other piece I'll mention on the AI, which is just something that most people don't talk about, but I think is important to put on the table, is that. Um, as chat bots and chat services become more and more sophisticated, it doesn't eliminate the need for humans. There's still going to be cases where things get either escalated to humans or humans are intentionally kind of in the loop in order to provide certain value. And increasingly, that value is more and more about connection, right? If it wasn't about connection, we could have a bot do it at some point. Right. Um, and so it's important to recognize that, again, connection comes back into the forest, what we're craving as consumers and what our employers are relying on us to provide, I think, for lawyers, all the more so. So it becomes sort of so twisted and backward then to have a billable hour structure that undermines this connection, which is so much a part of the value, ultimately, that humans are providing each other in an era of really sophisticated generative AI. And we need to First of all, create structures, compensation models that celebrate that, that honor that, and what it takes to connect. But also, there is emotional labor there um, that we need to to recognize. And whereas you may have had fifty percent of calls for a call service center were much more transactional, fifty percent had emotional labor involved. That ratio is going to change, and as that ratio change and becomes more of that emotional labor and connection energy, that takes a different toll or different level of toll. On the service provider.
1: I think that's right. And I think that what gets overlooked in terms of law firm success, billable client development success, having a fulfilling book of business, which I was fortunate to have when I was in private practice, is what I call the durability of relationships. And when you have that durability where you're able to invest time, and it doesn't mean that, you know, your client becomes your therapist or vet, vice versa, but you invest time to know them as a human so that you can talk through difficult and complex issues in a way that comes from a non fear based perspective. You can take difficult situations and actually grow your book of business. You can get an, an unpleasant outcome and actually come out with a stronger client relationship, but it's all about dissociating yourself from that, that concept of time famished, time famine, and realizing that picking up the telephone matters, that making a visit matters. And um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing, because I think that that's where, you know, the technological changes in the law won't displant that need for durability that's based on human connection. And the areas where it is going to play a role are going to enable people, in my view, to do more interesting things.
0: I hope so. I hope so. And I hope that we can evolve, again, the compensation models to really allow for the activities that matter most human to human, um, which are you know, evolving and, and hopefully in a positive way.
1: As we close out and we circle back to loneliness, can you describe what the toll that chronic loneliness takes on both people and on companies?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's all the things, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sort of going wisdom is in terms of impact to our cardiac health, to our longevity, to all cause mortality. Loneliness is about as bad for us as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Um, and uh, so for all of those listening who would never smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, you know, are, are we investing the same amount of care and concern in our emotional well-being um, as we are in, in knowing that we shouldn't be smoking? Um, we see that people with higher degrees of social connection at work, they are more successful, they get more raises, they get more promotions, um, they enjoy their work more, they feel they have more opportunities for challenge and growth. And then at the organizational level, it's, it's higher levels of um, employee retention, higher levels of innovation. So all, all of the good things really come from that connectedness. And without it, we, we falter physically, psychologically, we become more vulnerable to all kinds of psychological disorders, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and we start to, to see these negative outcomes at work as well.
1: Well, Dr. Kellerman, thank you for being so generous and patient with your time because I know we have done some some meandering. Um, Before we go, uh, where can people buy the book?
0: Yeah, um, so you can buy it at any major retailer. It's called Tomorrow Mind, one word. Um, And if you want more information, I do have a website, gabriellakellerman.com.
1: Do you want to do a little plug about um, your co-author who was... Quite an honor, I suspect, to write the book with.
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, Professor Marty Seligman, founder of positive psychology, um, the innovator on on learned helplessness, on optimism, longtime collaborator, expert with the military, studying and arming millions of of soldiers and affiliated personnel uh, for resilience and and combat readiness, um, and uh, a, a former president of the American. Psychological Association, and he was recently named the world's most influential uh, living psychologist.
1: So everybody, that translates into two brilliant people wrote a book that you should read. Um, (laughs) Sorry, had to do it. How can people find you and how can they learn more about BetterUp?
0: Yeah, so um, betterup.com, we have tons of information on the website. Um, and all the ways that we can help companies with these challenges through a broad portfolio of, of offerings. There's ways to send us um, questions and contact through the website. And um, if you wanted to send me specifically a, a question or an inquiry, you can do that on my website. Again, GabriellaKellerman.com.
1: And does Better up Coach individuals as well as work with companies?
0: It does. Yeah. So you can uh, find us in the app store and, and sign up for a coach
1: absolutely cool and um is, is the app available on both google uh apple and android it is great well thank you very much this has been erasing the stigma conversations about mental health in the legal profession my guest today has been dr gabriella rosen kellerman discover how major Lindsay in africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.